Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Hope your weekend was good. Um, we're Here we are. It's Tuesday already. And, you know, Monday got us off started on the right foot. And now we've got so much activity going on in our, in our uh, country, especially tonight on TV. It's going to be unlike any other event, I think, in past history. It's going to be interesting. But God is still on the throne. I'm in Psalm 43. It says, Oh God, take up my cause. Defend me against these ungodly people. Rescue me from these unjust liars, for you are my God, my only safe haven. And I always think that is where I go every day. I don't care what's going on in the world. I've got God. That is my safe haven. And I hope you feel the same way too. My first guest is Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. And he's with us on our studio line. Hello, Rob. It's great to be back, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. And we talk about what's happening tonight. Just for starters, it's going to be a Super Bowl numbers, isn't it? It sure is. I think that that's the uh, the story that we'll probably be talking about uh, not only the rest of the night, but maybe the rest of the week. Yeah. Uh, and that's because we live in just such unusual times when the campaign has been upended in so many ways. Uh, with the types of events that typically take place. Uh, you saw this at the end of the Democratic primary where really, um, you know, people were going to vote in, in situations where uh, they, they really didn't, you know, uh, ever expect to, you know, be, uh, be in a situation like that. And so the fact that the two candidates are getting together and doing something that is rather traditional in our history, which is, uh, which is these presidential debates, is, uh, is something to be celebrated. And, and let's hope that it's a discussion that focuses on the big policy issues and the debates that we're having in our country right now. I think that at a time when uh, there's so much focus on the personalities and the character of the candidates, uh, I'm not saying that that's not important, but what I think the American people really want to hear is what the vision is for the next four years. Amen to that. So some of the Republicans and some of the, even the Democrats, are interested in the removal of uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. What do you know about that? Yes, well, there is um, there is a move afoot, uh, particularly by the House Freedom Caucus, uh, to to make uh, put the pressure on Pelosi, if you will. You'll recall that Pelosi, uh, just by a very narrow margin, uh, secured her her speakership um, with the support of uh, of Democrats who were kind of on the fence. You know, there were those progressive Democrats who really didn't think she leaned enough to the left. And then there were those moderate Democrats who had won their seats in 2018, in part by saying that they wouldn't vote for Pelosi. So she not only faces, uh, you know, a, a really, you know, tight numbers in her own party, uh, but getting to that 218 uh, is a challenge when you have the entire Republican Party against you. And so uh, there are some Republicans who are saying that they want to take this action. And it's actually been intensified uh, just based on the last few days and some comments Pelosi's made about using some tactics to delay the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, and her Supreme Court uh, confirmation. That's because uh, apparently the House could re, um, re-litigate impeachment again, whether it be for Donald Trump or Attorney General Barr or maybe some other uh, administration official. And if the House were to act on that and then send it over to the Senate, it could disrupt the Senate's consideration of a Supreme Court nominee. So 
anything's possible in this town, Bill, but I would certainly hope that we don't have that kind of political theater. Uh, but one thing that the Republicans have said is if Pelosi tries to do that, they may force a vote to remove her as speaker. So lots of political theater in Washington, D.C. these days, yeah. that's for sure. And speaking of the political theater, I do want to go back to the debate because uh, your colleague Fred Lucas did such a nice job of putting together eight memorable moments from past presidential debates. And you can all go see that at DailySignal.com. Uh, what have been what have some of the highlights been for you, Rob? Well, let's. I mean, we could talk about the ones in my lifetime. I mean, there are some. Uh, there are some really good ones that I'm sure your you know your listeners right. listeners will remember. Of course, uh, Nixon versus Kennedy, and and the role that TV played in really giving John F. Kennedy the edge. There were those who had listened to it on radio and thought Nixon had won, but those who saw it on television, you know, just saw Kennedy's commanding presence. Uh, but I'd say, you know, the, the ones that, uh, that that really stick out to me uh, in, in in my life, uh, you know, are, are Ronald Reagan versus Walter Mondale and, uh, you know, his comment, right. you know, Reagan was was coming under fire for his age uh, of 73 <laughs> yeah. when he was running for re-election, right? And he had this, uh, you know, great line that I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. Uh, <laughs> and course, Mondale Walter just Mondale broke was, out laughing. <laughs> right. A spry 56 years old. Um, and then, of course, you know, <laughs> there, there, was, uh, there was George H.W. Bush. You know, these things are, are, are you know, it, it, there always seems to be, you know, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't matter. Somebody's going to make a, make a faux pas. And there was George H.W. Bush checking his watch. And it just, you know, had, a, had this moment that I think the American people – we're already having, you know, some trouble connecting with George H.W. Bush and and this uh, this kind of solidified things uh, in some people's minds. And of course, one of my favorite was that uh, th- that debate between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And of course, uh, Al Gore's uh, sighing <laughs> when George Bush was George W. Bush was answering the questions. This is back in 2000. And, uh, you know, I remember that one distinctly. He's never uh, the, the, <laughs> for those who, um, who who were, you know, in George Bush's is is George Bush's camp uh, on the debate. There was a lot of you were very nervous because. Going into the debates, you, you never – George W. Bush was the one who was known to make gaffes, similar to what people you know, kind of associate mm-hmm. with Joe Biden today. And, uh, and it was actually Al Gore who came out of that one making some of the biggest gaffes, uh, the lockbox and the sighing uh, and, and those things that were really a turnoff for voters. So look – we we can go back to uh, to, to 2012 and, and the Benghazi incident with uh, with Candy Crowley, or we could go back to, to 2016 and Donald Trump pacing around and I think making Hillary Clinton really nervous. Uh, so who knows what's going to to be expected tonight? I do know one thing though. I've heard that they're not going to shake hands, uh, not because they dislike each other, but because they want to make sure that they're uh, maintaining a safe distance and not spreading germs. Mm-hmm. I do remember a debate. <laughs> so they say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I do remember a debate, I think it was between Dick Cheney and Joe Lieberman, and there was a certain civility they had between each other that was kind of lighthearted, and they started off, and Dick Cheney said something like, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get personal, I'm not going to have any personal attacks towards you tonight, Joe, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to ask you to sing. And, of course, Lieberman just broke out laughing, and, and he said, you know, if things get bad, uh, you know, Dick, I, I will start singing. You know, so there was a certain right. kind of civility, and I, I think it doesn't hurt for the American public to see uh, that in uh, two candidates, and I don't think we're going to see that tonight, but it certainly is, uh, I think it helps. It helps the viewers to say, okay, these guys are human, and they're going to they're gonna try to it, be fair. It, it does, 
And and Bill, you, you know, you, you you raise a great point because we 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 too often I think forget about those vice presidential debates. But it was just four years ago that Tim Kaine and Mike Pence were having their debate, and many people point back to that debate as as another moment that was you know kind of critical in in the evolution of that campaign. Everybody expected uh, Tim Kaine to just come in and uh, and sweep the floor, take out Mike Pence. You know, it was going to be relatively easy. And what happened, in fact, is that uh, Tim Kaine almost looked beyond Mike Pence. And it was just an attack dog the entire night, almost the exact opposite of what you described with uh, with Joe Lieberman and Dick Cheney. And so I think that, uh, you know, there are those moments that uh, you, you don't expect. I mean, and that's that's, I think, Going into the debate tonight, what uh, what we as Americans are, it is what kind of like a football game in that sense. There will be surprises. Uh, we, we really don't know what direction Chris Wallace is going to take it. There was this big bombshell that just came out with uh, with President Trump's uh, uh, you know tax returns. Uh, I expect that that's going to be a topic. Of course, the nomination of, uh, of, of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so, uh, you know, a variety of topics that are really consequential and could play a big role. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about Amy Coney Barrett, and there was an opportunity that uh, people on the uh, committee have a chance, the senators, to, to meet one-on-one with her. I guess some have accepted and some have refused, and some of the thinking was that she is so hard to dislike that they don't want to run the risk of starting to like her because they have to grill her in the, uh, in the hearings. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, so, so there, I, I thought... Um... Ted Cruz had had a had a good tweet over the weekend where one of the Democratic senators uh, from Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal, you know, said he was refusing to meet with uh, with Judge Barrett and would, would not dignify, you know, the the process or whatnot. And then Cruz wrote back and said, "Good, maybe it'll move a lot faster <laughs> without the without the, <laughs> the circus that normally goes on at these these confirmation hearings." But yes, she has started meeting with senators. She met with Senator uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell today. I know she met with Senator Cruz today. I think she's probably in with Senator Lindsey Graham, who's the chairman of the committee right now. Uh, The president officially sent her nomination to the Senate today. So the process has officially started. Uh, and uh, and there will be uh, a lot to accomplish in the next in less than two weeks. Uh, she has to answer the senator's questions. And you're right, Bill. She's not going to meet with a lot of Democrats, if any, uh, as a result of the current political circumstances we find ourselves. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the Democrats decide to do about the committee hearing. Uh, if they do try to boycott it, uh, that won't have much uh, much ability to derail things. It'll, in fact, it'll probably just make it go faster. Uh, the committee uh, is planning hearings the week of October 12th. So uh, that's coming up soon. And then they'll probably vote out uh, her nomination, uh, assuming everything goes as planned the following week uh, with with a, the final week of October being when uh, she could find herself on the Senate floor facing confirmation. And as we know, because the Democrats changed the rules, they only need uh, 50 votes plus one, the vice president casting a tiebreaker uh, mm-hmm. to confirm a, a justice. So there's very little that the Democrats can do to stop her, just as there was little that they could do to stop Brett Kavanaugh. But we saw uh, what happened in that case. There were some last minute allegations that did derail things. And uh, and I, uh, Bill, I think it's just really sad to see some of the things that they're trying to throw at Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, the fact that she adopted two children from Haiti, uh, the fact that, you know, that the people are criticizing that, including you know notable scholars uh, as as cultural appropriation or the colonization. I mean, I just think it's horrible. Uh, here, uh, here she was, you know, uh, welcoming children into her own home and trying to give them a better life. 
uh, and and somebody would would pick that apart. But I think that that's what the politics has become. There's a lot riding on this nomination, and uh, and they're throwing a throwing everything they can at her. I already I also heard Rob that somebody said it's a it's a shield when you hire when you um, uh, adopt African American kids. It's a, right. it's a shield so that you're not called a racist. Well, and and Bill, having uh, you know some some friends from from church who who did that, and uh, and really, I think. Uh, gave this child, uh, you know, a much better life uh, as a result. It wasn't from Haiti. It was actually from, from uh, the United States. Uh, you know, I, I know it wasn't in their case. Uh, they genuinely loved the, their child, and, uh, and they did that um, for their own personal circumstances. Let's face it, there are, a lot of fa- there are a lot of moms and dads who, for whatever reason, you know, aren't able to have kids of their own, and they look to adoption as a way to, uh, you know, to, to build that family. And, uh, and, and they have a real calling and a passion. And I, I know many people who, who have been in that situation, and, uh, and I thank them. Uh, I think it's a tremendous, uh, you know, responsibility uh, to, to take on. And uh, in her case, to have seven children, uh, two of whom are adopted and one with special needs, um, you know, she is a, a very special person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know her personally. Uh, we've interviewed her. Uh, we, we interviewed her on one of our podcasts at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we posted the uh, the, the transcript and the audio for, for your listeners, if they want to hear her in her own words, what she's talked about is one of the only interviews I think she's done this year. Um, so, you know, uh, get to know her a little bit. I think that's right. what we're going through right now. And uh, and let's make our own determinations without letting politics get in the way of it. That's uh, exactly right. All right, Rob, when I come back, I want to ask you about the uh, Prayer March 2020, which was on Saturday. Rob Blue is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal, and we'll be right back. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. And we are definitely in a time of uh, deep national divisions in our country. But uh, on Saturday, a big number of people showed up on the mall to pray. Rob, what, what did you, uh, what can you report on that? Yeah, it w- wasn't it great uh, to, to see that? Uh, we, we, my colleague, Virginia Allen, uh, did a great story, uh, which you can find at dailysignal.com, uh, read all about it and see some pictures of the crowd. Uh, 50,000 people, uh, and, you know, many of whom were, uh, were wearing masks. It was hard to socially distance yourself, though, in a situation that big. Um, but it was, it was really great. It was led by Franklin Graham, uh, of course, the son of the late Billy Graham. And, uh, and, and Franklin Graham runs a terrific organization called Samaritan's Purse. And the Prayer March 2020 was attended by some really big names, including Vice President Pence and his wife, Karen. And their goal was really um, to do exactly what it says, uh, to bring people together and, and pray for our country. And I think that uh, these challenging times that we find ourselves in uh, are certainly uh, no better thing to, to do. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the actual event, you know, some of the things that the Virginia, Virginia interviewed a number of people, and uh, and she's quotes some of them in the in the story, and they talk about you know the importance of God in in their life, um, in the lives of others, and uh, and what it means uh, to be amongst other people on the National Mall in Washington D.C. Uh, you know, there were there people there who uh, were. Looking out for those who are unborn and uh, and motivated, I think, by a variety of reasons. Some came from colleges like Liberty University in Virginia. Uh, you know, others uh, traveled from all over the country, and so really encouraging to see, uh, particularly at a time when when these types of gatherings have been 
uh, not happening as frequently in part because of, of, of COVID-19. And so um, really encouraging uh, event, Bill. And I'm glad that we were able to cover it at the Daily Signal. Mainstream media didn't cover it quite as well, though, did they? No, no. No surprise well, <laughs> there. Bill, uh, if mainstream media uh, covered it at all, it would be a surprise. But unfortunately, when they do tend to cover these events, whether it's it's this the prayer march or the March for Life or other things uh, that bring together Christians or conservatives, I mean, too often the coverage is negative, and right. uh, and I think that that's that's uh, that's unfortunate. Um, whereas there are mar- other other types of marches which attract much smaller crowds that, that tend to get a lot more coverage, and so uh, you you do see that bias in the media quite often. I think that it's uh, it's something that we need to continue to point out and and try to hold those in in positions of power, particularly in the media, accountable for their actions and make sure that they know. Uh, that their listeners, their readers, uh, you know, have have strong opinions on these issues as well. Mm-hmm. Rob, the more we learn about the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the more complicated it seems to get. How is this movement being used? Yes, well, it, it is uh, it is complicated, Bill, and and we've done some tremendous research. Uh, and uh, and I'm going to mention two things here. First of all, Mike Gonzalez, a colleague of mine at the Heritage Foundation, a former reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Uh, has has done some investigative work which shows the connection between uh, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, some pro-China groups. And, and of course, uh, I think what you're referring to is Virginia Allen's interview with uh, one of the with another investigative journalist, James Simpson, who has really documented some of the ways that the uh, progressive left uh, has has taken some of the Maoist communist type of views and adopted them as part of this movement. And I think that people and, and corporations that are donating to Black Lives Matter uh, generally support the slogan, uh, but they don't really understand what's behind the organization. And it's important, I think, whenever you make that kind of donation. Uh, it's why I personally support, you know, organizations like the Heritage Foundation and Faith Radio because I believe in what they do, and uh, and I think that uh, you know people who have supported Black Lives Matter, the organization, need to take a close look at that. Uh, do you support uh, the breakup of the nuclear family? Do you support some of the communist views uh, that are being infused? And and why all of a sudden, within just the last couple of weeks, has Black Lives Matter? quietly erase them from its website and are they have they you know stopped talking about some of these things so vocally i think it's because the polls and uh, the feedback they're getting are not so positive as they as they were initially back in in may and june Mm -hmm. and the heritage foundation does such great work didn't you recently uh launch a campaign for uh, amy coney barrett's confirmation we did. You know, one of the things that, that we really want to make sure that we're doing is, is uh, as we can within the 501c3 construct, give uh, our members Heritage is unique as a think tank, Bill, and that uh, not only do we have our own news organization within the Heritage Foundation, which is the Daily Signal and what do we talk about every Tuesday, but we're also... Uh, you know, driven by 500,000 members. Um, and, and that's really significant because a lot of think tanks in Washington get their money from a handful of foundations or corporations. And the Heritage Foundation is supported by, you know, hardworking men and women all across this great country. And not only does that allow us the independence to do our research, but it allows us to stay principled on, on a certain set of values and a, and a core mission. And so we want to give those uh, supporters an opportunity to express their voice and be active. And so, yes, uh, using this great platform called Free Roots, 
they can uh, they can show their support for for Judge Barrett, uh, send a message on social media, sign a petition, uh, make sure that there is a, a swift confirmation. So uh, so Heritage is is quite active in that regard, and uh, we're 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 trying new things, um, and uh, we've got more more in store uh, coming down the, the pike here as we have a critical month of October. But we want to make sure that the American people really understand what's at stake. Mm-hmm. Robin, I was looking over the list of topics that's going to be discussed tonight. I didn't see uh, our debt issue uh, on the list of topics tonight, but that's a big one, isn't it? It rarely is, Bill, and I don't know why. I mean, there was a period of time when when our our national debt became really a you know a rallying cry. I would say that that was about ten years ago when you saw the Team Party right. movement uh, you know rally around this particular issue. Uh, but no, it's it's not something that is often talked about, and yet it is a significant problem facing our country. Uh, the, the debt keeps growing uh, with budget deficits year after year that uh, that seem to continue to grow. Uh, we can't keep spending more than we take in, and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, and and those uh, in the future generations are going to bear the burden of this. There's going to come a point where uh, we just aren't able to sustain this much longer. And uh, I would hope, uh, and and it's not something that you hear even President Trump talk about, but I think it is an area that should be a priority uh, should he be reelected re- to a second term. I think that we need to get spending under control. And I hope Chris Wallace brings it up tonight, and I hope he points out uh, where we are historically. Uh, I mean, we are approaching levels that uh, we haven't seen, you know, since World War II. Uh, and, of course, we're facing, you know, much different circumstances. Uh, and we're on our way to a much, uh, much darker future if we don't get this under control. And it's going to impact everything from, from Social Security and Medicare and all of those programs that Americans rely on. And so it's important that we do something about it now to prevent a calamity in the future. Mm-hmm. Rob, the founders... I had this idea. I know this was an article that uh, one of your colleagues wrote at the Daily Signal. So head to dailysignal.com. Kim Holmes was the author, but uh, talking about the idea that the founders had a a distinct idea of of moral order. They believe that morality and government should be in accordance with what they called the laws of nature and of nature's God. And it is, it is right. Yeah. And so it does make, uh, uh, American accept- exceptionalism quite different from the other countries' nationalisms. It does. It does definitely. Uh, the, 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 it, as we look back on the founders and the contributions they made, this is, I think, one of the most important distinctions that separates the United States from from other great countries, and uh, and it's something important to remember. And I think you're going to be hearing a lot about this, particularly. Uh, as we debate the future of our country. Uh, right now, we're so focused on the election. It's a hard time to have these, these foundational conversations about the United States and the direction, you know, you, you know, in the years to come. But I guarantee you, Bill, uh, as soon as this election is decided, uh, I think that uh, we'll have some big choices to make about where, where we're headed in the future. And I hope that people read Kim Holmes' article because I think it gives them an important reminder of where we've been and, uh, and where we should be going. Mm-hmm. Rob, we're out of time, but we have just enough time for you to wish Rebecca happy birthday. Well, Rebecca, happy birthday. It's, uh, it's always wonderful to talk to you every <laughs> Tuesday, and we are so grateful uh, for the opportunity to share with the Faith Radio listeners an update from Washington, D.C. each week. It's always great to talk with you, Rob. I always learn so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Rob. Thank have you. A great Have a great night. Take care. Yep, Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We're going to take a little break. When we come back. We're going to hear from author Jason Stonehouse. Be right back.
Pursuing the life you were made to live. What a great idea. I think all of us are interested in that. Author Jason Stonehouse is my guest. He's written a book called Something More, Pursuing the Life You Were Made to Live. And he's also uh, got quite a bit to say about anxiety and a number of other things that we're going to chat about with today. Jason, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right. This uh, managing anxiety in unmanageable times, you have my interest. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think especially in our COVID quarantine world that we're living in right now, if you've had any twinge of anxiety, it has probably skyrocketed in these last several months. And so I think it's very timely. Um, but I've dealt with anxiety for the last seven plus years as a pastor and um, just living life. And uh, and so I've just, I thought, man, I, I need to be able to get some of this content out and be able to share some of the things that I've learned um, through the along the way and what God's shown me through the process, but anxiety is a, a big deal today. All right. So maybe you would share a little bit about your own personal uh, s- struggle with it or, or what, what has happened in the last seven years. Well, it was the weirdest thing. I can remember it was probably seven, eight years ago, and I was about to preach a Christmas uh, sermon. It was in the month of December, and I had asked our church over the um, previous months to say, hey, you need to invite your friends. You need to bring some friends, and you know, we want to be able to share the gospel with them. Well, that particular Sunday, I had probably six or seven people come up to me and say, hey, you know, I invited so-and-so, and, uh, I, you know, I've been trying to get them for the last, you know, few years and they finally said yes, or there's this little uh, old lady on my street and she hasn't been to church in 40 years and, and she's here today, you know, and so, <laughs> and then me, you know, they're, they're trying to share this with me and yeah. all I'm hearing is don't mess this up, yeah. pastor, you know, oh, this, yeah. <laughs> this better be your best sermon ever, <laughs> you know, so I remember getting up on the, on the stage to be able to preach and I remember just feeling like very warm and, um, and then I like, I, I've started to feel faint. And so I was like holding on to uh, the table that I preach with and I don't know what was going on. And I somehow got through the sermon without anybody really noticing. But afterwards I said, something just happened. And I talked to some people and they said, you had a panic attack. And I was like, what? I I never, I had never even known what that was or how that worked. And, and so that really started this journey where almost, almost weekly, um, even right before I would get up on stage, I would feel this, this high level of anxiety and um, really just dreading it. I started feeling sick physically, and it was just a very, very difficult thing. And um, so I went to some therapy and some counseling and just started trying to work through what was really going on, what was I feeling, what was this, where was this anxiety coming from, those kinds of things. And then that also kind of spiraled into, or at least help me understand that even for the years previous to that, I was dealing with a phobia related to getting sick. And I would often get very fearful about um, whether people didn't wash their hands and all kind of the germ germaphobe kind of thing. And because I was so afraid of getting sick, and I think mm. it all kind of tied in together. And I had kind of seen those as two separate events, but really it all kind of came under that umbrella of anxiety. And so I, I was just really struggling with um, how do you really work through that? And I remember uh, telling my wife at one point, I said, man, if this is going to be every weekend, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. Well, then along comes COVID. Yeah. Well, how does that factor in? Yeah, I mean, I mean by the time COVID hit us, you know, that's six, seven years uh, after my journey. So I definitely had... Did it trigger anything? It, it definitely had some okay. triggering trigger, triggering impacts related to the past. Um, but I, I had felt like I got a little bit of a handle on 
how to manage it and um, on a number of different fronts, you know, as far as a spiritual front, but also just the emotional aspects of it as well. Mm-hmm. So a combination of a little therapy, maybe a little meds and just the way in which you retrain your mind. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things was just really understanding what was mine to own and what was God's to own. And I think sometimes in our lives, we one of the reasons we worry is because we feel like I'm trying to control something that I can't control. That's really not supposed to be my control. And so that was like a a mindset shift for me where I just had to begin to understand that all that weight that I was feeling and all the worry and the what ifs that started to come was not because what well, well, was because of um, me trying to carry something that wasn't mine to carry. Um, and that was the really big mindset shift. Now, there's a lot of therapy in that to say, well, what, where does that come from? And dealt with understanding kind of that performance mindset. Some of us have that idea of, you know, we need to perform, we need to keep excelling, we need to keep you know, doing our very, very best. We need to be perfect. Um, all of that can feed into anxiety, but, and that was part of my story as well. And then I think the medication piece, you know, for years and years, I had always thought, you know, as a Christian, do I, should I be taking medication? Is that something that I should be um, even engaging in? But one of the therapists that I work with said, you know, um, she said, it's not going to heal you. It's not going to fix you. She said, it's kind of like swimmies when you're learning to swim. She's like, it doesn't teach you how to swim. It just kind of keeps you safe while you're learning how to swim. And I thought that was a really helpful um, a metaphor as I began thinking about my own anxiety. So it, it allowed me to have, it maybe took a little bit of the edge, um, but it also allowed me to have some space to be able to figure out how to swim, you know, when it came to anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then Jason, even as a pastor, didn't, didn't you have this inner voice saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, this, this shouldn't be happening to me. Right. You know, I need to, am I not trusting God enough? What's going on? Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that really was a a good and a bad thing because the the bad thing is I felt this pressure like, well, if people knew, if people knew that I struggled with anxiety, you know, what would they think? What would they think of me? What would they think of me as a pastor if they if they all of a sudden knew that their pastor struggled with anxiety. They would think of you as a lovely, honest person. <laughs> well, today I can say that. Yeah. But I, you know, and it was, was, was really fascinating was I remember the week that I decided to kind of go public with, hey, gang, like, I'm scared of death of y'all. <laughs> 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 um, you know, there's times when, I, when I'm standing right down there before I walk up on stage that I'm really, really anxious. And I remember sharing it with the church and, and I, I was just a little bit nervous. Like, what are the people, what are people going to think? And what was fascinating is after I went down from that, from the stage and I was in the back and people were chatting with me, I probably had my counseling load triple, uh, as a result of that, because yeah. finally people said, Oh, he gets it. Like, <laughs> you know, he's dealing with what I'm dealing with. And so exactly like you said, it, it only endeared me, I think more and said, okay, this is a real person. This is not somebody that's distant from, from me. Um, but yeah, I think my own journey of just saying like, well, what am I doing wrong in my spiritual life? Because I am a pastor and I'm a follower of Jesus. And um, shouldn't, if, if I truly trusted Jesus, would I be getting this anxiety? Would I be having these panic attacks and all of that? And, um, and I think that was just a, a multi-year journey of just really trying to understand that God actually was okay with that because he was using it to humble me. 
Yeah, you know? and a big warm welcome to the human race. Yeah, exactly. You know, my, I, I, I hear stories all the time of people that you would not think in a million years would be suffering from anxiety or confidence or whatever it is, panic right. attacks, and you hear about that and you go, you really? Yeah. So, no, yeah. it's... It's uh, absolutely uh, something I hear over and over. All right, let's talk about just the lack of control over things that you felt like you should be in control of and some extreme thinking. You know, there's this always, never, that kind of stuff that yeah. we, all, we all have those tendencies now and then. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think one of the biggest causes of anxiety is I am trying to control something that I feel like inside I need to control this thing but the reality is I can't control it. And, and I think the, the, the combination of all of those words strung together is really one of the largest causes of anxiety is I'm worrying about something because I can't do anything about that thing. So a lot of times you'll have parents of adult kids and they're worried about their kid and, and they have this worry, constant worry and anxiety about their kid's job interview or whatever. Well, they can do nothing to control that mm-hmm. or, or their, their kid is making some poor choices or even in our own lives, how we might say, I, I need need to be able to fix this or control this. And the reality is we can't. And so that gap between what I can control and what I can't control um, tends to create that anxiety. What I think complicates it or makes it worse is I get to this point where I think I should be able to control this. And that's the the trick, I think, is the or the, the tempting piece in it is I think I should be able to control this thing, but I can't. And so I keep trying to control something that I can't control. And um, and all that does is produce anxiety. So that's probably one of the biggest causes. The second cause that that I've seen is what I call extreme thinking. Um, and this is where I get into a situation where I am saying I'm, this is always going to happen this way or it never works out for me or because I screwed up in the past and I made these decisions, um, therefore my future is already determined. And so that extreme thinking of it's always going to be this way or it's never going to be this way or my past is somehow guaranteeing my future um, will cause that anxiety because, again, I say, well, I can't fix my past. I can't go mm-hmm. back and change it. Or um, how, how do I know that this isn't going to happen again? Or how do I know that this will happen when it's never happened for me in the past? And so a lot of times that past determines the future, um, but not always. But mm-hmm. that's the extreme thinking that we get into. Yeah. Jason Stonehouse is my guest. He's a, a author. He's written a book called Something More, Pursuing the Life You Were Made to Live. He also has an upcoming series of uh, webinars. You can head over to lifeinprocess.com to learn more about that. After a short break, we'll be right back. So glad to have Jason Stonehouse as my guest. He's an author and uh, a speaker and a pastor, and he has written a book called Something More, Pursuing the Life You Were Made to Live. All right, we're talking about anxiety, and this is, I'm sure, touching uh, uh, a touch point for a lot of people, whether it's 
a personal thing or someone in their family or, or a circle of friends. And let's go to some of the, uh, the ways in which uh, we measure anxiety uh, and some of the, the causes and contributors. Yeah, so we've talked about, you know, the lack of control over things I think I need to control, the extreme thinking. And then the the third cause of anxiety that I've found is what I call bad measurement. And that is when I give something too much weight that really doesn't deserve that weight. Mm. And so what happens is I might take somebody's opinion of me, right, Bill? So I can say, oh, if Bill doesn't like me, then I must be a horrible person. Yeah, but because, I do like you. Yeah, I know you do. So, so, <laughs> so we're that's good. A, that's a terrible illustration. <laughs> So, yes. Um, So anyway, uh, we can give too much weight to maybe people's opinions of us or we can give too much weight to if I don't get this job, then I'm a horrible person or my life, you know, my life doesn't matter or whatever. And so what happens is I give I put too much weight on something. And that's what really I think causes anxiety, because we say if this doesn't work out. Mm then then my life's over. Mm-hmm. Well, your life's not over, but the problem with anxiety is it 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 lies to you and it and it tells you this story that this is this matters so much that you will not be a person anymore. Or you will not have an identity or your value or worth is based on this thing. And so it's it's what I call a bad measurement is when you're putting too much weight on something that is not weighty um, and you're making it you're making it that way. And that's what's causing the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So so I think one of the ways that we start to get a handle or manage our anxiety is we look at those things and we say, am I trying to control something that I can't control? And then what can I control as I go forward? And when we talk about extreme thinking, we say, is, is there a better way of thinking? Is there a shift that needs to happen in the way I think about things? And then is there something that I'm maybe giving too much weight to that it doesn't deserve that kind of weight, or I'm, I'm making it bigger than it really is? Mm-hmm. So let's look at God's Word a little bit, because uh, you will we'll be very fast and quick to say, and I appreciate this, that Jesus is very concerned about our anxiety. Yeah. And he, why? Yeah, he really is. And uh, it's fascinating, you know, when you, there's certain parts of, of scripture that you don't really, they, they come alive for you in different ways when you're dealing with different things. And I, I read this passage uh, of Matthew chapter six, many, many times. And I always tend to go right away to verse 33, uh, which is the very famous verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Well, what's fascinating is that verse actually comes at the end of a discussion that Jesus has related to anxiety. Um, in fact, he says in, in verse 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And so Jesus is is immediately saying, hey, I'm telling you, don't be anxious about your life. And you're like, okay, thanks, Jesus. I'm good now. <laughs> don't be anxious. Yeah. But but he cares about it. And, and I think one of the things he hits on right away is he says, isn't your life about more than this, right? So is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? And what I believe Jesus is trying to point us to is that we tend to worry about things that we say all of life depends on this thing. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you're, you're putting the wrong value on this. Life is about more than this thing. And so he's inviting us, I think, to a bigger story. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, look at the way I take care of the, the birds and look at the way I clothe um, the, the flowers. And, and what Jesus, I think, is doing t- with his audience is saying, hey, pick your head up. 
mm-hmm. because a lot of times when we're dealing with anxiety, we tend to focus very inward. We tend to get very tunnel vision, very much tunnel vision, and we focus on this one thing that's not happening the way it should, or we're worried that it's not going to happen the way it should. And so we get very worked up about it, and we get we start to worry about it. So I think one of the reasons Jesus starts appealing to nature is and and I'm maybe reading between the lines but I almost get this sense like hey pick your head up look at go over there look at that bird <laughs> go get, you know walk in a field go go spend some time in there because he wants to get our minds off of whatever it is um that we're working on and or that we're worrying about and help to see look at what God's done look at how much of a powerful God and one of the reasons one of the things I've loved um as a follower of Jesus really since I think 17 uh, I remember um driving to this park near my house and I would go for these walks and just have these out loud prayer walks with with God and one of the reasons I love doing that is I could see trees and flowers and and I could see all that God created and so whatever my issue was as a 17 year old or a 47 year old who I am today I can look at this creation and say wow if God could do this and if God could create that well, then my issue is small. My issue is tiny compared to that. And so I think that's part of what Jesus is doing here is just inviting his listeners to say, hey, look around, look at what I've already done, look at what God can do, and and really then kind of moves into the futility of, of worry. He starts to say, well, who can, you know, how, who can you add one thing to your life um, by worrying about it? How can you add anything to your life by worrying about it? And, and Jesus is, is, is saying the, the idea of worry, even though you feel like you're doing something, um, you're not, it's not changing anything. All it's doing is hurting you. And, and I think that's really um, part of that futility of, of worry. And then, obviously, we get into the what-ifs, um, you know, regarding the future and um, what, what's going to happen here, what's going to—and and Jesus um, brings up here in verse uh, 31, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. So I get this—one uh, of the things that causes anxiety with me and with so many people that I've worked with is this what-ifs. Um, and, and Jesus seems to be addressing it. Well, what should we eat? And, what, and it in, implies, what if we don't have enough to eat? And what if we don't have enough to drink? And what if we don't have enough to wear? And it's this what if kind of thing that I think kills our present because we're worried about something that's not come to be yet. And Jesus says, hey, today's got enough worries of its own. Don't mm-hmm. be thinking about the unknowns. And, and I think with, with this COVID culture, Everything, every day is an unknown now, right? We don't know what, what's going to happen next. Where's yeah. it going to happen? What's going on? And so this fear of the unknown, I think, is one of our greatest causes of anxiety right now in, in our current culture is this idea of the, of the what ifs yeah. built on the unknown. So. so, Jason, if we have anxiety and we feel it and maybe we, we've been living with it for a while, can we assume that we can eliminate it or do we just have to figure out a way to manage it? Yeah, this is a somewhat debated subject, you know, and again, this comes back to what we were saying earlier of if I really trust God, would I, could I live in a way that has no anxiety? And I think on a, on a health level, psychologists would say that um, there is some medical things, there's some chemicals in our brain that can make us more predisposed mm-hmm. to anxiety than other things. Um, so in that sense, I don't know that it can be completely eliminated. Um, but in my own story over the last seven years of dealing with this, 
uh, I can say that I don't ever get to a point where it's like, oh, good, I'm done with that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go any. And so I've learned that if I could just get a handle on it, if I could just manage it and really begin to surrender as um, – Peter says, um, uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And so that's not a one-time thing. It's, it's this constant casting. So that's a way of managing anxiety is saying, I'm not going to carry this. I'm going to cast this on God because he cares for me. And so I think anxiety can be managed, but I'm not so sure that it can be eliminated. At least I've not seen it. Yeah, so. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So um, just have a couple minutes left. Talk about uh, humility and about the fact that we just need God and need to stay close to him. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, we were talking about earlier and you were saying welcome to the human race and this idea of uh, as a pastor, I'm, this isn't supposed to happen. Well, uh, God brought me to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul, and we're not sure what this um, thorn in the flesh is, but it says that he says as he deals with whatever that thorn is for Paul— he says, you know, in my weakness, that's where I'm strong. And, and Paul is speaking in a, in a present tense. He wasn't speaking like, I used to be weak, and now I'm strong. Mm-hmm. He's saying, in my weakness, mm-hmm. that's where I see God's strength. And so I think part of, for, at least in my journey, I'm grateful for the anxiety because it's humbled me to a place of, of admitting my neediness with God, of, of realizing that I, if I don't live dependent, um, I'm going to miss out on what God wants to do in my life and um, so that I, I, I can't be in control. I'm, I can't have the pride to say I'm not supposed to struggle, but I am struggling. Mm-hmm. I am a dependent person and I am weak. And so that humility piece is so huge. And I think the, the sooner that I could, and when I went public to my church and said, hey, I deal with anxiety, part of that was just being willing to humble myself before God so that he could really be the one that speaks and works in me. And then on a, on a practical level, it's just developing a sustainable rhythm. And, um, and that's, that's something that, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about. But just on a, on a high level, it's just a matter of doing certain things that are going to build in the Sabbath for me um, in saying, I'm going to take that time to rest and really recognize that God is in charge and be refreshed in him. Um, time in the word, time of stillness and silence. Um, what um, Peter Scazzaro in his book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, talks about the daily office, this idea of spending time with God in silence and in scripture mm-hmm. and, um, and just really, so some of those kinds of rhythms that you start to build in this walk with God that I, I like to, to talk about just being able to go out in nature and be able to go for a walk and, and have a prayer walk with God. Um, a number of those things can build into a sustainable rhythm that will allow you to then when the anxiety comes, be able to deal with it. Yeah. It's amazing evidence that God provides for us just so he says, you have anxiety, go out and observe my handiwork. Yeah. And then uh, come come back to me and tell me what you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be trusted, Jason Stonehouse has been my guest. He's got a number of upcoming uh, webinar, webinar events called Something Helpful. And the three topics are anxiety, personal development, and relationships. You can learn more information about that at lifeinprocess.com, lifeinprocess.com. Jason, thanks for coming in. Yeah, hey, thanks so much for having me. All right, coming up in the next hour, I'm so glad to have my friend and Bible mentor, Jeff Verdorn. He's going to be with me for the whole hour, and we're going to talk about end times. And I think we're we're going to think about it like a 30,000-foot view of end times, because we only have an hour, and that's not enough time to cover end times. But 
We're going to talk about why we study the end times, and we're going to talk about biblical prophecy, and it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful hour. I would uh, hopefully also invite you to text questions if you have them. I don't know if we're going to have a lot of time for questions, but let me know what they are, 877-933-2484. And I know uh, Jeff is going to be working off uh, his extensive notes in a chart. I don't know if I'm offering the chart because I don't know if I'm going to send this or not. You need to have this pretty much in front of you when you go through the message. That's what I'm guessing. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll go through this. We're going to talk about end times with Jeff Verdorn. That's all coming up next. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.